from my mailbox. I recently fished out a headline emblazoned across the front of a newspaper to which I subscribe. And the headline said, Simenon versus Camus. And it's not a bad article, but I'm not going to talk about the article because I'm not going to read Simenon nor Camus, not tonight anyway, but I should add them both to my list. I'm mentioning this because all week I've been staring at this paper on my desk with raging mental images of Simenon and Camus arm wrestling or trying to woo the same woman or even drag racing in our cars. It's really been quite prohibitive, these images, but fun and not prohibitive enough that I'd moved the paper away from my field of vision or anything. It's Tuesday, the 25th of March, 2008, and it's Miet's Bedtime Story Podcast. Binoculars by Robert Musil. Slow motion pictures dive beneath the agitated surface, and it is their magic that permits the spectator to see himself with open eyes, as it were swimming among the objects of life. Movies may have popularised this phenomenon, but it has large been available to us by a means still to be recommended nowadays because of its convenience. By looking, that is, through a telescope at objects that one would usually not watch through a telescope, an experiment of this sort is described in the following pages. The first object of our attention was a sign on the gate of a beautiful old building located directly opposite our observation post, a building that houses a well-known government agency. This sign proclaimed through the binocular lens that the government agency held office hours from nine to four. This already elicited the observer's surprise, for it was three o'clock, and not only was there no official in sight, but the observer could not recall ever having seen with his naked eye an official in the agency at this hour. Finally, he discovered two tiny figures standing close together behind a remote window, drumming with their fingers on the window pane and staring down at the street. And no sooner had he discovered them than, as they stood there trapped in the little circle of his instrument, he understood with warm sympathy and realised with pride how important this telescoping function might yet become for bureaucrats and for men in general who have a sacrosanct number of hours to sit out in an office. The second object of his attention was the building itself. It was an old palace with a festoon of fruit on the capital of the stone pillars and a beautiful articulation of the façade in height and breadth. And while the spyglass still searched for the officials in attendance, the observer was already struck by how clearly this support structure 
these windows and cornices had positioned themselves in the circle of his looking-glass. Now that he had taken it all in with a single glance, he was almost startled at the stony, perspectival exactitude with which it all returned his gaze. He suddenly realised that these horizontal lines that conjoined at some point toward the back of the building, these contracting windows that became all the more trapezoid the farther to the side they were situated. Indeed, this entire avalanche of reasonable, familiar limitations into a funnel of foreshortening located somewhere to the side and to the rear, that all this had until now struck him as a renaissance nightmare, an awful painter's legend, actually, of disappearing lines, reputedly exaggerated, though there may also be some truth to it. But now he saw it before his very eyes, magnified to more than life-size, and looking far worse than the most unlikely rumour. And if you don't believe that the world is really like this, just focus on a streetcar. The trolley made an S-shaped double curve in front of the palace. Countless times, from his second-story window, the observer had witnessed it approaching, seen it make this very S-shaped double curve and drive away again. At every stage of this development, the same elongated red train. But when he watched it through the binoculars, he noticed something completely different. An inexplicable force suddenly pressed this contraption together like a cardboard box. Its walls squeezed ever more obliquely together. Any minute it would be completely flat. Then the force let up, the car grew wide to the rear, a movement swept once again over all its surfaces, and while the flabbergasted eyewitness relaxed the breath he had held in his breast, the trusty old red box was back to its normal shape again. All this happened so clearly, so out in the open as he watched it with his lens, and not just in the private chamber of his eye. But he could have sworn it was no less real than watching a fan being opened and shut. And if you don't believe it, you can try it yourself. All you need is an apartment toward which a streetcar approaches in an S-shaped curve. Once this discovery had been made, the discoverer naturally turned to watching women, and thus was revealed to him the whole inescapable significance of human architectonics. That which in a woman is round, and according to the fashion of the day, was then more painstakingly hidden than it is today so that it looked like nothing more than a small, rhythmic irregularity in the otherwise boyish flow of motion. Arched 
inwards again, under the incorruptible eye of the binoculars, turning back into those ancient, simple hills that constitute the eternal landscape of love. And round about, unexpectedly, a myriad of whispering folds, aroused by every step, opened and shut in her dress. They announced to the naked eye the inviolable appearance of the wearer or the talent of the tailor and secretly revealed that which is not shown for when magnified impulses are actualized and when viewed through the tube of the looking glass every woman becomes a psychologically spied Susanna in the bath of her dress. But it was amazing how soon such a sophisticated curiosity evaporated under the immovable and clearly somewhat spiteful equanimity of the binocular's glance, and nothing remained but the trifling and flicker of those eternally constant values that require no psychology. Enough of this. The best way to ensure against an obscene misuse of this philosophical tool is to ponder its theory. Isolation. We always see things amidst their surroundings and generally perceive them according to what function they serve in that context. But remove them from that context and they suddenly become incomprehensible and terrible, the way things must have been on the first day after creation, before the new phenomena had yet grown accustomed to each other and to us. So too, in the luminous solitude of our telescopic circle, everything becomes clearer and larger, but above all, things become more arcane and demonic. A hat, which, according to common custom, crowns the masculine figure and is synonymous with the overall appearance of the man of worldly influence and power in altogether skittish form belonging to the body as well as the soul, instantly degenerates into something insane when the binoculars strip it of its romantic attachments to the world around it and restore its true isolated optical presence. A woman's charm is fatally undercut as soon as the lens perceives her from the hem of her skirt upwards as a sack-like space from which two twisted little stilts peer forth. And how frightening does the ivory flashing of love become, and how infantilely comical is anger when both are separated from their effect, isolated in the circle of the lens. There is, between our clothes and ourselves, and between our customs and ourselves, a convoluted relationship of moral credit according to which we first lend customs and clothes their entire significance, and then borrow it back again, paying interest on the interest and this is why 
we border on bankruptcy and we cut off their line of credit. Naturally, this has some bearing on the much ridiculed absurdities of fashion, which one year make us longer and shorten us the next, which make us first fat and then skinny, sometimes wide on top and narrow on the bottom, sometimes narrow on top and wide down below, which one year prescribe that everything be combed upward and the next year insist that everything be combed back downwards again, impelling us now to brush our hair forwards and backwards, now to the right and to the left. If we consider it all from a wholly unsympathetic standpoint, fashion offers us an astoundingly limited number of geometric possibilities, among which we alternate in the most passionate way without ever totally disrupting the tradition. If we likewise include the fashions of thought, feeling, and action, about which practically the same can be said, then our entire history must appear to the sensitised eye as nothing but a corral, within the confines of which the human horde stampedes senselessly back and forth. And yet, how willingly we follow the leaders, who themselves merely charge ahead of us, out of terror, and what joy grins back at us in the mirror when we connect with the fashionable norm, looking exactly like everyone else, even though everyone looks different than they did yesterday. Why do we need all this? Perhaps we fear, and rightfully so, that our character would scatter like a powder if we did not pack it into a publicly approved container. The observer ended, finally, at foot level, that is, at that point where man raised himself upright out of the animal domain. And how uncanny is that spot in the case of the communion between man and woman? We do, after all, have some prior knowledge of this sphere from the movies in which famous heroes and heroines waddle rapidly toward us like ducks. But the cinema serves our love of life, and makes every effort to beautify its deficiencies, at which purpose it succeeds with even greater technical proficiency. Not so our binoculars. They persist unrelentingly in showing us how ridiculously the legs disengage themselves from the hips, and how clumsily they land on the heel and sole. Not only does this organ swing inhumanly and land fattened first, but it likewise manages, meanwhile, to effect the most revealing personal grimaces. The man, with his eye to the instrument, noticed two such instances in the course of five minutes. Hardly had he aimed at a young fellow decked out in a sports cap, whose socks were striped like the neck of a ring dove, 
when he likewise noticed how, with a concentrated and tiny jerk in each of his slow steps, this fellow knocked the leg of the girl sauntering beside him out of sync. No doctor, no girl, not even he himself had any inkling of the awful prospects that lay ahead. Only the binoculars detached this tiny gesture of helplessness from the universal harmony of brutality and allowed the approaching future to appear in the sight. Something more harmless happened to the plump and friendly man in his prime who came quickly walking by and offered the world a kindly obliging stride. According to a line down the middle of the site that neatly severed the legs from one another, it became apparent that his feet were repulsively twisted inwards. And now that at this one spot the curtain of truth had been lifted, one could see that his arms also swung selfishly in their shoulder sockets, that his shoulders tugged on the nape of his neck, and instead of revealing a benevolent overall appearance, all at once revealed a human system solely concerned with itself. A personality that couldn't give a hoot about anyone else. In this way, the binoculars contribute both to our understanding of the individual as well as to an ever-deepening lack of comprehension of the nature of humanity. By dissolving the commonplace connections and discovering new ones, it in fact replaces the practice of genius, or is at least a preliminary exercise, and yet, perhaps for this very reason, we recommend this instrument in vain. Do not people, after all, employ it, even at the theatre, to heighten the illusion, or during intermission to see who else is there, thereby seeking not the unfamiliar, but rather the comforting aspect of familiar faces. <laughs>